Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We bring you interviews today from both sides of the debate over whether or not the United States should create a central bank digital currency. In a little bit, we'll be joined by Ovik Roy, president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, more at freeop.org. He's also policy editor at Forbes. First, we're joined today by Jim Harper. He is non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, more at aei.org. You can also find him on Twitter at Jim underscore Harper. Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be with you, Scott. Thank you. Talking today about CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currencies. And before we go further in our discussion, Jim, I think a definition is in order. What are central bank digital currencies and why are we talking about them in this manner today? Well, many of us are getting more and more familiar with um, digital currency that is privately issued, like Bitcoin. CBDC, central bank digital currency, to me is sort of a competitive response from the government sector. Uh, They have enjoyed for the last few hundred years uh, a monopoly on the issuance of money. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have threatened that, and I think CBDCs are are their response. A CBDC is a you know a digital representation of the dollar or whatever other currency, literally digital. Most of the payments we do online these days uh, are through service providers, and so it has sort of a digital looking skin, but it's actually conventional uh, money movements. This would be something that you could move hand-to-hand metaphorically probably more like phone to phone or Mm -hmm. some other device to some other device without the intermediaries that we that we currently use uh the the system running it would be controlled by the central bank uh, which creates a lot of the concerns but we're talking about a, a modernization of money that has some profound effects for for good and potentially for ill as well presently China has a CBDC in a piece you wrote. You call it a surveillance coin. It's a it's a coin designed to increase government power. What is China doing presently with their CBDC? China is out in front of the CBDC revolution, if you will, and that's not necessarily for the good, consistent with the interests of the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. Their CBDC is transparent to the uh, People's Bank of China, which means that all transactions potentially can be scanned. Now, there are levels of privacy that you might get from use, but in the back end, privacy vis-a-vis other other actors, but at the back end, the government can see all of it and can control all of it. It even has apparently a, a technical ability to uh, you know, bar entire financial sectors or reduce the amount of payments to financial sectors. It's a level of control and surveillance that's frankly, it would be shocking if we didn't already know how intensely the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government are working to control their people and to ex- export th- those kinds of values around the world. I will ask you later about some concerns about America and the United States getting involved in CBDC, but I want to give you an opportunity first to lay out potential benefits. Why should the United States be involved in CBDC? And and what are the potential benefits of us jumping in? 
Well, I'll say first that if there was a viable private money that could operate at this scale and challenge the major currencies, I'd be all for it. I was with the Bitcoin Foundation in 2013, 2014, because I saw that potential in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. That doesn't seem to be manifesting itself. So my preference would be for fully private money. But if we're not going to have that, an upgrade of our existing money system might be in order. One of the leading reasons for me is the enormous, ridiculous cost of payments and other really simple financial services. Uh, a payment is a, a movement of information, and so it should be close to free. It should be something like the cost of an email. Mm -hmm. And instead, what we have is a, is a system that takes 1%, 2% of transactions. I, I came across this number, I forget where, so it could be off uh, and maybe even substantially, but something like $50 billion a year in the U.S. goes to payments costs. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it's $10 billion, okay. If it's $100 billion, that's even worse. <laughs> Clear that out, get that money back to consumers. You're talking about a net present value of, you know, a trillion dollars in benefit if you can get rid of $50 billion of that waste. And so a CBDC has the potential to lower the cost of payments substantially. And that's, I think, an, would be important progress. Secondly, and this is not my strength, but the ability to implement monetary policy. Right now, when the Fed perceives a need for to controlling the amount of money in the in the financial system. It does that through the banks, and somehow the banks all always seem to come out well hmm. in that process. When the currency is inflated, the consumer loses. The banks win. When they when they contract uh, the amount of money in the system, the banks win and the consumers lose. I don't know how that happens, but it always seems to. <laughs> there might be. There might be steps, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't give a, a central bank unreserved ability to to affect people's um, financial holdings, but helicopter money—that is, dropping money into people's wallets individually—could do a great deal better than trying to increase the money supply through banks, which again seem to profit mightily while consumers lose. So tools like that may be a substantial benefit of a central bank digital currency issued by the United States. And finally, and probably most controversially, I would say that the potential for improving our financial privacy is there. Right now, the financial privacy status quo is completely unacceptable. Something like 20 years ago, I went to speak to a Bank Secrecy Advisory Act group in the Department of Treasury. And I did this nice presentation, I think, <laughs> on what privacy is, why it's important, so on and so forth. Really nice talk. And I wound it up at the end saying, and by the way, everything you do is unconstitutional. <laughs> the financial surveillance system we have in the United States, in our, in our paper, we, we suggest that it's my, my paper with Chris Giancarlo, the founder of the D Digital Dollar Project and former chairman of the CFTC. We're saying that the U.S. financial surveillance system is a lot more like China than people realize. Mm -hmm. And that's unacceptable. And what we're doing, I think, is we're going to sponsor or spur a, a revamp of financial surveillance law in the United States through the adoption of a central bank digital currency. I think a central bank digital currency that does not come with a revamp of financial surveillance law in the United States would be unacceptable. So what we're trying to do, I think, is kind of join, join these two issues together. If we're going to have a CBDC, we're going to have financial privacy again. That's the, that's the sincere hope. Yeah, so I I, I want to be very specific about this, and I'll actually read your quote from the uh, from the paper because I wrote it down. Our current financial system is more like China's than it has become socially acceptable to admit. 
So do you argue, and I think you are arguing, that potentially under a, a, a CBDC, an American CBDC, that privacy would in fact be improved if designed in a proper way? Yes, and only if designed in a proper way. And I wouldn't support a CBDC that, like Bitcoin, creates a personal identifier with every transaction. I come to this with with the experience of error, (laughs) which is having written in my first public blog post about uh, Bitcoin, I said, oh, and it's, it's private. One of the great things about it is the financial privacy that it provides. Well, it turns out that the public key half, the, the shared key in the public key uh, cryptography system, uh, works really well as an identifier. And so the tracking of those public keys has rendered Bitcoin quite a bit less private than I thought it was and publicly said it was uh, 12 or 13 years ago. There are designs out there, a number of competing designs that um, can make it so transactions are not freighted with identifiers. And so transactions, the data that would be held by the central bank would not reveal who was involved in the transaction. It's the potential exists through a thing called zero knowledge proofs to have not even the amounts uh, uh, available to the to the central bank. I'm not sure that's the right way to go, but there are a number of competing technological solutions that would allow for fully private transactions, even while confirmation of those transactions is uh, held by a central bank or its designees and operated by the central bank. So going through that, it, it might be a, you know, it might be a keyhole or a needle hole, but getting through that hole in a, in a fully privacy protective CBDC, I think is a real way forward in terms of privacy and these other values I talked about. Jim Harper is with us. He is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. With China already rolling out its CBDC, do you worry about the possibility of that Chinese CBDC replacing the U.S. dollar as as the currency, uh, most trusted currency around the world? Is it one of the reasons perhaps the United States should consider taking the lead in the digital future of money in this matter? I don't regard myself as the monetary policy expert that can make such a dire prediction, and I kind of find the the full prediction doubtful. But on the margin, I think that China will gain something by having a CBDC, particularly you know working working through its uh, Belt and Road Initiative, where it's sort of exporting, you know, it's it's engaging a lot with other countries in Asia, with Africa, with South America, to to build its own hegemony to to, to to battle battle with the West. If 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 a Chinese central bank digital currency is the only option, you're going to see a lot of adoption around the world. Mm-hmm. On the margins, I don't think it beats out the dollar in the end. In the end, but Russia as well added add to add to that as a country that wants to wants to see the dollar weakened, and the euro for that matter. And so so worldwide, we'll see surveillance through money as much more common. And and I think the U.S. would benefit, and the world would benefit, by having a coin, uh, a CBDC, that does not export those values. Uh, I think there's there's no way if you build a privacy protective CBDC that it's not used by people in other countries, mm-hmm. and getting people in other countries to be able to use uh, fully free financial systems, privacy protective financial systems, financial systems that don't allow their national governments to control the movement of capital around the world. It's an opportunity to expect export our values, um, export the, the values that the United States stands for. 
So I don't think it's I don't think we're talking about a, a an existential situation for the dollar. Uh, it's based on much more about our society, our transparency, our rule of law, and so on and so forth. But on the margins, I think it's important to a lot of people to get privacy protective money into their hands. In terms of trustworthiness and, and getting people to trust that their privacy will be respected in the use of CBDC, you talk about transparency in this piece you've written and perhaps making the code uh, open source for reviewers outside the system. What are those ways to build trust in an American CBDC system? Yeah, well, I really, you know, from the cryptocurrency world, we, we try to do with as little trust as possible. <laughs> you want to be able to prove mm. that, that that this is true and not have to rely on trusting, uh, uh, certainly not a central bank or, or government system. I've got sort of three, three even since that paper, I've come up with sort of three high-level technical things. One is that we, we can't, as I spoke about earlier, we can't have identifiers built into the transaction data. That's going to be a privacy disaster. You also can't condition lodging of transactions on identifying yourself. So we have to have some system where you can lodge transactions without identifying yourself. Say if, say if the whole thing was intermediated by banks with that have Fed accounts. Well, those banks would just give up, give up the data to, to the Fed or other government agencies for the asking. And so that's not a solution. In the cryptocurrency world, the open cryptocurrency world, proof of uh, control of the private key is what what gives you authority to lodge transactions. And we probably need something like that or something very close to that in order to, to technically make it uh, an open available system that's privacy protective and liberty protective. The final one is open source. Open source code is code that anyone can review and confirm that it does what people say it does. Uh, so uh, I think it, it's of the essence that a system like this has to be open source. And if the code is going to be run by authorized actors, they need to be able to prove that they're running the code that they're saying they say they're running. Uh, I don't know enough. I'm not technical enough to know that 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 the technology to do that exists. But I think it can be built. And if we uh, if we can't prove that authorized parties are running the code that they say they're running, well, the code then should be moved out to people's devices and phones so that so that the relevant code is actually in the possession of people. That would be another real protection against policy change. One of the natural arguments, and it's a good one, is that a CBDC that's privacy protective in the first instance is going to get changed. The government will swap out something that's not privacy protective. If mm -hmm. there's a, you know, some future disaster, some attack, some, or even just to, just through accretion of demands to to get money about, uh, or to, rather to get information about deadbeat dads or get information about child molesters or whatever it is, those those cases would be made to, to swap out a, a non-private CBDC for a private one. I think what you what you would best do is have the relevant software that, that uh, lodges transactions be uh, open source and publicly operated. That's, that is, everybody would have in their phone the code that allows them to lodge transactions. If you have that, then people can refuse uh, quote-unquote upgrade, <laughs> recognizing that, that it's actually a downgrade if they're mm -hmm. moving privacy invasive software into your phone. So uh, it's a, it's a, again, it's a kind of a needle to thread, but with the really horrible, impossible financial surveillance regime we've got, we should be talking about it. And it's possible that, that an American CBDC actually reflects American values 
uh, transparently and provably so that we don't actually have to trust in our government to protect our privacy, which would be <laughs> as foolish today as it always has been. One, one final question for you, Jim. There are uh, variants of cryptocurrency now called stable coins. They're, they're private, and, and the value is then pegged to national currency. So why would an American CBDC also be uh, better and, 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 and a better alternative to the, the current stable coins in existence? Well, I put stable coins, uh, they're, so they're private in the sense that they are privately issued. I, I put them in, in the same category as the rest of our current financial services. Uh, as far as I know, and I haven't investigated this deeply, so I could be wrong, stablecoin operators are licensed in New York, according to the BIT license. They're subject to U.S. Um, regulation, federal regulation, and those things all require them to participate in financial services, just uh, in financial services, in financial surveillance just like any other regulated financial services provider. So I don't understand the argument that stablecoins are uh, superior in terms of privacy, which is my primary focus. I don't know that the stablecoin issuers are big enough, and I don't know that we'd want them to be, be big enough to operate at the scale that we're talking about in terms in a CBDC. The CBDC would be the nation's money in the United States. And it would be a system that that um, can handle, you know, perhaps a hundred trillion in value in transactions per year. Um, it's an open question, I think, at least whether we we want to have uh, uh, the stablecoin companies get to that size. I'm sure they want to get to that size, but um, I don't think they're any more privacy protective. And uh, I, I just don't know. I, I think they're a little bit. There's a little bit of a difference in kind. It's a good market for the stablecoin providers to be in this space, and they might oppose a CBDC on that basis. But I don't think they get us to what a CBDC could do. Jim Harper, a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Find more at AEI.org. Find Jim on Twitter at Jim underscore Harper. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on Future of Freedom. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Now to hear the argument from the other side of the issue, we hear from Ovik Roy, president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. More at freeop.org. That's F-R-E-O-P-P dot org. He's also policy editor at Forbes. Ovik, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Talking today about the debate and conversation about uh, uh, an American central bank digital currency. And I think we need to begin by doing some definitions here so people are aware of what we're talking about. Central bank digital currencies, people are just getting used to uh, to crypto, perhaps, and now a new phrase. Uh, what is what is a central bank digital currency? Well, uh, I might introduce the, the topic by uh, mentioning a tweet from uh, New York Times columnist Paul Krugman from uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, he was He said, true story. My wife was in line waiting for coffee. And the guy in front was ranting to his companion about how central bank digital currencies are going to take away our freedom. Hmm. And so he, he goes on to say, you know, this has actually been a right wing thing for a while, even though the theories keep getting crazier. Robin, his wife, called to correct me. The guy was ranting to the cashier and her. So he's <laughs> looking at this like, what, what is this, this crazy conspiracy theory out there that random people who probably listening to the craziest fringe talk shows on the right wing are talking about, well, you know, how is this some conspiracy? I mean, how nutty is that? 
Um, and I'm here to tell you that uh, uh, it's it's actually it's a serious problem. It's it's actually I, I would argue and have argued in National Review and Forbes and elsewhere that a central bank digital currency is the single greatest threat to individual liberty in the United States that exists today. And that may seem like a provocative or uh, hyperbolic statement. You know, how, how, what? I mean, this thing I've never heard of is the greatest threat <laughs> to freedom in the United States. And I'm going to I'm going to walk you and your, and your listeners through why that is. Yeah. Let, let's start there. Why do you say that? What is it about central bank digital currency that is a threat to our civil liberties and potentially our, our freedom? So uh, if to understand what a central bank digital currency is, it's basically, and we'll use the, the, the acronym CBDC for short, uh, a CBDC is basically uh, a, a cryptocurrency or a, a, a digital currency that's based on the same underlying technology as Bitcoin. Using, it uses a blockchain uh, to verify transactions on a computer network on the internet. So you can say, okay, if, if Scott, if you send me Ten dollars uh, with the CBDC. There's a database uh, on the internet that logs that Scott Bertram at his account sent uh, Ovik Roy at his account these ten dollars, and it deducts ten dollars from your balance and adds ten dollars to mine. In in the context of Bitcoin, what's really important is that uh, Bitcoin is is first of all it, the value of Bitcoin is independent of the dollar, right? It's a completely mm-hmm. different currency. And that's, a, that's one key element of it. But that's not so much relevant to our conversation today. What's really important to our conversation today is that, that the network that validates those uh, Bitcoin transactions, so if you sent me $10 worth of Bitcoin, let's say you sent me you know, one, you know, 0.01 of a Bitcoin, then uh, uh, the difference is there, there's a decentralized network of, of hundreds of thousands of computers all over the world that verify that that transaction exists and is true. And there's nobody in the world that can prevent that transaction from taking place. So if you want to send me $10 worth of Bitcoin, no one can stop that transaction. I mean, as long as you have an internet connection and I have an internet connection, that transaction will go through because the network that uh, that validates the Bitcoin transactions is run by hobbyists and uh, industrial uh, companies uh, and tech firms all over the world. And there's no there's no one point of control. Ovik, so how is a central bank digital currency set up differently from that? By, by the very name, the central bank digital currency is controlled by the central bank, which in the U.S. is the Federal Reserve. And the idea of a central bank digital currency is that all the transactions are visible to and controlled by the central bank, in this case, the Federal Reserve, in the case of China, the People's Bank of China. And so the idea of a central bank digital currency is you get some of the some of the qualities of Bitcoin in terms of the ability to send money all over the world very quickly. But you the difference is, unlike with Bitcoin, where literally nobody controls a network, nobody can stop it, nobody can take it down, nobody can block it, it's censorship resistant. It's the opposite with a central bank digital currency. With a central bank digital currency, if the Federal Reserve decides that um, you know, gun manufacturers should not be getting money from you or me because gun manufacturers are bad businesses and we should, we should uh, try to make their lives miserable, then uh, the, the, uh, under a CBDC you could do that. And, and that's not a, a hypothetical scenario at all. Uh, under the Obama administration, regulators 
created a, a program that, that was called Operation Choke Point in mm-hmm. which they pressured banks to like Chase or Wells Fargo or Bank of America to not do business with gun manufacturers or fun firearm manufacturers with the idea that if, we, if you uh, prevent them from having bank accounts, uh, they won't be able to do business. And this is not just something that's been done in the United States. So in, in China, uh, uh, for a long time, China had been annoyed by the pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong called Apple Daily. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a long time, they tried to prevent Apple Daily from, uh, from you know, saying pro-democracy things by jailing their editors and jailing their publisher and, and other such hassles. But that, never, that didn't stop Apple Daily. Apple Daily kept on doing what it was doing. They finally were able to shut down Apple Daily by basically they, they created that uh, they, you know, they created that security law and kind of alongside that they said well you know we're basically going to prevent uh, the banks from working with Apple Daily so that Apple Daily can't pay its journalists they can't pay its printers to print the physical newspaper mm-hmm. and Apple Daily within three weeks shut down because they literally went broke because they couldn't pay anybody and they couldn't get paid. And so all that to say that the ability to control whether you can get paid or not, whether you can receive or send money, is about as fundamental to your liberties as any it's, – it's arguably more fundamental to your liberty than freedom of speech, the freedom to send money to and from various places. And the, 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 why China is excited about a central bank digital currency, they are the world leader in advancing this concept. They've already rolled one out, is because for China – They love the idea of being able to say, hey, with a central bank digital currency, if Scott Bertram goes and and buys a can of Coke from the pharmacy, I'll know that he did that. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, you can can get even more grand. We we can say, you know what? I don't want this person taking train tickets, uh, you know, taking trains anywhere. I'm going to stop them from doing that. You align it with the social credit system in China where they say, well, you've spoken out against the government or you've committed crimes or whatever it is. Uh, We're going to uh, make life harder for you financially. And so while the advocates of an American-style central bank digital currency obviously don't use those examples to to advocate for their cause, they do talk about how a a CBDC in the U.S. would enable the Federal Reserve to, in a more fine-tuned way, control the economy. So imagine, imagine a stimulus check where... If you if you didn't spend the money within three months, the the money vanished. Hmm. So they can do things like that to control your behavior more than they can with more more straightforward cash, and all and again eliminate the privacy. So there would be no crime, you know, in the sense that money laundering in theory would go away, uh, and other and other such uh, undesirable outcomes. But you also would have no no civil liberties, no freedom. Some supporters of what they call an American-style CBDC, say, what if we had it and only used it for banking, for the Federal Reserve, but not for consumer transactions? Is that a sustainable model for something like an American CBDC? Yeah, so great question. And so in the Forbes piece I wrote relatively recently, I, I highlight these, uh, these, uh, these elements of, of um, you know, these uh, arguments from the center-right or from Republicans and conservatives uh, some at least that say, hey, you know, actually, don't 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 pay any attention to China. There's a way to do this that respects American conceptions of privacy, and one way to do that would be to have a CBDC that only was operational between the Federal Reserve and 
the banks that work with the Federal Reserve. So mm-hmm. as a as an ordinary citizen, you wouldn't have any interaction with the CBDC. You would interact with the bank the same way you do now. The only difference would be when the bank puts money, deposits money at the Federal Reserve or vice versa, a central bank digital currency would be used for that purpose. And that's a, a, an incredibly naive view, in my, in, I argue, because the, the hardest thing technically is to actually build the CBDC. Once you've actually gone through the trouble of building the CBDC and passing, whether it's congressional statutory authority for a CBDC or the Federal Reserve building the policy architecture of the CBDC, then designing the software and the network, like all that is a lot of work. Once you've built the thing, and let's say you set it up that way, the so-called American-style CBDC where it only works between the Fed and the banks, well, All it takes is for a new administration to come in or a new Congress to come in or a new Federal Reserve to come in and say, you know what, Uh, let's say Elizabeth Warren becomes the Fed chair, right? And Elizabeth Warren says, you know what, it's so great that you built this CBDC. Thank you very much. Now we're going to we're going to expand it to uh, retail use. It's not just going to be for uh, for banks and for uh, for the Fed. And this is perfect because now we can abolish paper money. You know, you know, right now. Scott, if you give me $10 in cash, of course, we're not talking in the same location. But if we were and you give me $10 of cash, you know, unless I give you a receipt that's posted online, there's no Internet record of that transaction. Right. 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 So paper cash is actually the most private thing there is. Um, And credit card data does get uh, does have a little bit less privacy, but you don't have to use credit cards if you don't want to, if you want to be truly private. And even though even the credit card data, it's. You know, it's owned by the credit card company. If the government wants to get it, they have to file a subpoena. Now, that's not true with the CBDC. The, 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 the data is already with the government, so there's no subpoena to be had. They already own the data. So uh, it's, it's, it's very easy for, say, Fed Chair Warren to flip a switch and say, you know what, we're going to abolish paper money. You could even abolish conventional banking. Like, you don't need to deposit money at your at your Chase or your Wells Fargo if you can now deposit money with the Fed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there would be no need for depository institutions. In theory, you could abolish a depository institutions. So that's, in a sense, part of why this American-style CBDC narrative has, has come about, because the banks are lobbying the government to say, hey, we don't want you to abolish banking, so don't do, don't do a whole, whole hog CBDC China style, but just do this wholesale thing. That's fine. We can live with that. And that's a mistake on the part of the banks because once you've built the CBDC, there's no guardrails. I mean, you could you can you can imagine your own on my mind that there's a guardrail, but there is not a guardrail. Just as you know, when we passed a constitutional amendment uh, to to establish the progressive income tax, and the progressive income tax when it started was three percent, and now it's thirty seven percent at the top rate. Mm-hmm. Like the, you know, once you've established the thing, that's the hardest thing to do, and everything else is easy, and, and it will be very very dangerous for for privacy and for civil liberties and economic freedom. You mentioned China being enthusiastic about the central bank digital currency. Is there a worry, should we be concerned, that if China goes ahead with it and it becomes popular, could it at some point replace the U.S. dollar as the premier worldwide currency? If people are interested in this sort of transaction, this sort of currency, does it make sense for the U.S. to get involved so that we might be able to control it better than China might? Uh, so another great question. And this is one of the arguments that, again, the, some of these uh, uh, center-right advocates like Kevin Warsh, who's now at the Hoover Institution, and Christian Carlo, who uh, served as the chair of the Commodities Futures Trade Commission in, in, under the Trump administration, 
Uh, these are these are two of the things that uh, that they've argued that well we've got to do this because if we don't do this then we're going to be left behind by China and then the Chinese yuan will um, eclipse the dollar as the world's uh, most important currency uh, for for international trade and commerce and that that is a real head scratcher of an argument for a couple different reasons like first of all like if you are, if you have a choice between two currencies. <laughs> One of which is a dollar that you've used your whole life and has some basic privacy protections. And the second choice is a Chinese currency that, by the way, is pegged to the U.S. dollar um, and uh, has no privacy at all because the central bank knows every single thing you do. Which are you going to choose? I mean, you're going to choose as much as possible to trade in the U.S. dollar. I mean, you're going to trade in renminbi if you're, if you're trading with China or Chinese businesses directly, perhaps. But if you're trading with American businesses, you're not going to trade it. If you're a Brazilian company or a German company, the idea that you're going to trade in renminbi merely because it's in digitized form, that makes absolutely no sense. So uh, let's say, you know, if there's, you know, if, if a German business doing business with the United States or, or a Brazilian business doing business with the United States, they're not going to do it in renminbi. They're going to do it in dollars. Maybe they're going to do it in euros. They're not going to do it in renminbi, first of all. And second of all, Right now, if you if you really think that uh, a blockchain-based version of the dollar is is good for you as a business, and you need to you want to use a blockchain-based version of the dollar to transact with with your colleagues and counterparts in other countries, you can do that today. There are what are called stable coins, which are basically uh, you know blockchain-based versions of the U.S. dollar that are backed by usually treasury bonds and other dollar-like assets, just like money market mutual funds are that have existed for decades. This is a pretty standard business practice. And these stable coins have been around for quite some time now, for almost 10 years, and they do enormous volumes of business. Today, if you actually look at the market for so-called stable coins, which again are these, uh, these uh, cryptocurrencies or digital assets that are backed by traditional currencies, digital dollars, digital euros, et cetera, digital versions of the US dollar are like 98% of the market or 99% of the market. So that shows you that around the world today, the overwhelming desire of the marketplace is to transact in dollars, even within the crypto universe. And so this idea that somehow because China has this central bank digital currency where they have complete totalitarian surveillance over all of your transactions and the ability to control whether or not your bank bank account exists or not, like the fact that the idea that that's something that we have to catch up to and keep up with, I just, I just, I find that honestly kind of mindless. And uh, I find it very puzzling that people who otherwise understand the case for economic freedom are making these arguments. Ovik Kroy, he is president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. That's freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. Also policy editor at Forbes. Ovik, thanks so much for joining us here today on The Future of Freedom. Thanks, Scott. We thank both of our guests for joining us today. Jim Harper is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. He's on Twitter at Jim underscore Harper. And Ovik Roy, president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. More at freeop.org. He's also policy editor at Forbes. For more episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network. Music